Globally, COVID-19 has infected nearly 4 million people. Tragically, around 300,000 have died. Millions have lost their jobs. Airlines and businesses have gone to the wall. Economists believe we are on the edge of a deep recession. And we are just trying to make sense of these moments. What's next? What does the future hold? And can we know? Is there any hope? Good evening and welcome to part four of Hope Awakens, brought to you by the Hope Channel. I'm Rebecca Bergen, one of your hosts for this amazing series by John Bradshaw. We're so glad to have you joining us tonight. Greetings to our viewers from all over the South Pacific. Hello in Port Moresby, in Christchurch, New Zealand, Rarotonga in the Cook Islands, Townsville in Queensland and Margate in Tasmania. And everyone else, we're excited to continue this journey together. Now, in case you haven't registered or this is your first time tuning in, go to hopeawakens.com.au and register. You'll get access to previous episodes, great resources, and you can ask questions and much more. Now, before we go to John Bradshaw, Robbie, do we have any questions for tonight? Yes, we have a few questions tonight, some really good ones. The first question is, does the Bible actually say Satan causes trouble for people? Another great question. The amazing thing about the Bible is, is that it contains a narrative from both a God and human perspective. In fact, the very first book written in the Bible was not Genesis, but it was actually the book of Job. See, Genesis was placed first in the Bible because it deals with the first part of the story of creation, hence the name Genesis. But the very first book inspired by God in the Bible was actually the book of Job. Now, this book gives us an insight to the human story from God's perspective. The book of Job highlights a cosmic conflict taking place behind the veil of the spiritual realm. The insight that this book gives us is the actual workings of Satan towards humanity. Now, if you go back and have a look at Job chapter 1 and chapter 2, you'll see very clearly that Satan is extremely capable of actually causing trouble, pain, and calamity for people. Now, I'm sure that opens up a whole lot of other questions, but a lot of these questions will be answered as we progress through our series, Hope Awakens. So just stay tuned. Now, our next question is, how did Jesus defeat Satan by his death on the cross? Another great question. Now, we got a sneak peek into this in last night's topic, The Origin of Evil. We saw there was that character, Satan. Well, in the biblical narrative, we see that Satan has accused God of two things. One, not being loving, and two, not being just. But at the cross, both of these two charges were seen to be wrong. God showed that he is loving and he is just at the same time. Absolutely remarkable. Well, that's all the questions we have time for tonight. So let's go straight into the program with John Bradshaw for tonight's topic, Heroes in a Time of Crisis. Let's pray together before we go further and open the Bible. Let's pray. Father in heaven, bless us now as we come to your word. Encourage us. Keep us in the center of your will and your heart. Speak now, we ask you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Today, you can text or call or email or video call or just about do whatever you want. Back in the old days, I mean, I mean, way back, uh, like the 1980s, you didn't have all of those choices. Even further back, people used to send telegrams, but of course, they've long gone out of vogue. Way on back, stock exchanges needed to find a way to transmit financial data quickly. So they used telegraph lines to send the data. That financial data would be printed out on a machine called a ticker. Because of the sound it made, it ticked. The information itself was printed out on strips of white paper known as ticker tape. They started using this in the late 1860s. Tickers were also used at baseball stadiums and so forth to print out baseball scores from around the country. Used ticker tape would be used as confetti during parades, which is why today we have the term ticker tape parade. In New York City, ticker tape parades have been held since the 1880s. The first one was a spontaneous ticker tape parade uh, held after the dedication of the Statue of Liberty in 1886. City officials then caught on to the benefits of these parades, and so they started holding them with some regularity. There was a ticker tape parade held to honor outgoing President Theodore Roosevelt after his African expedition. A large ticker tape parade was held to honor Gertrude Eddeley in 1926 after she became the first woman to swim the English Channel. It was a huge affair held in what they call the Canyon of Heroes, a stretch of a little more than half a mile long, running up Broadway from Battery Park in the south up to New York City Hall. Charles Lindbergh was honored the year after the Queen of the Waves, as she was called. Parades have been held for Vietnam veterans, for Olympic medal winners, for Baseball World Series winners, for Nelson Mandela and other politicians, for Stanley Cup winners. Parades have been held for Super Bowl champions. You get the picture. And just yesterday, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio announced that New York City is going to have the greatest ticker tape parade ever. He said that after the coronavirus crisis is over, the first thing we will do is we will have a ticker tape parade down the Canyon of Heroes for all of our health care workers and our first responders. He said, we will honor those who saved us, which appropriately, I think, makes us stop and think. We're used to thinking of heroes as being sports stars and so forth. But if we really stop and think about it, we will realize that the people who truly make the big difference in society are people like, well, like those who serve in the military and teachers and law enforcement officers and aid workers and firefighters. Let's think about some, some real heroes. I want to tell you about a gentleman. You've heard of him. His name was Wesley Autry, the man they called the Subway Samaritan. In 2007, a 20-year-old man suffered a seizure on the platform of a subway station in New York City, and he fell onto the tracks. While a train was approaching, Mr. Autry threw himself on top of the man in a drainage trench between the tracks. The train passed over top of them so close, it left grease on Mr. Autry's cap. That was heroic. Three weeks later, he was a guest of President George W. Bush, at the State of the Union address. But let's bring it closer to what we're dealing with today. There are countless examples of people doing truly heroic things. One Detroit physician who was close to retirement volunteered to go to the front lines and treat COVID-19 patients. Dr. Stanley Berry told Time magazine, I do have fear, but the bravest people that I knew of in my lifetime, Medgar Evers, Malcolm X, and Martin Luther King Jr., 
all knew they were going to die. They went ahead and did it anyway. I don't want to die. And I'm not in this to be a hero, but medicine's been good to me. And the city of Detroit's been good to me. And we're being clobbered right now. My will is made, so I'm just going to try to follow all the guidelines for wearing personal protective equipment and help. How about that? Another physician, Dr. Sarah Rosenell, in the same publication, Time Magazine, said, I'm a mother of three children. I have an 11-year-old, an 8-year-old, and a 5-year-old. I chose medicine to really help people in the most meaningful way possible. After I was exposed and I wasn't protected at all, my husband, my parents, my in-laws, everybody around me told me, that's it. You're not going back. We want a wife and a mother. We don't need a cardiologist. We don't need a doctor. We love you and we want you to stay with us. Everybody came to me and told me, do not go back. But I felt it was a moral duty. I thought it was unethical to not go back. I love my children more than anything in the world. I love my children. I could not have not gone back. I want to help. Isn't that something? That's powerful. Prince Philip the husband of Queen Elizabeth II, said a couple of days ago, quoted by the BBC, I want to recognize the vital and urgent work being done by so many to tackle the pandemic, by those in the medical and scientific professions, at universities and religious, uh, sorry, and research institutions, all united in working to protect us from COVID-19. On behalf of those of us who remain safe and at home, I also wanted to thank all key workers who ensure the infrastructure of our life continues the staff and volunteers working in food production and distribution, those keeping postal and delivery services going, and those ensuring the rubbish continues to be collected. That's right, the rubbish, the trash. Let's think about these people making such a big difference. There are police patrolling our streets, and anyone out there is at risk. In some places, the risk is much higher than others. I'm grateful for those who produce the food we buy without giving it a second thought. And as Prince Philip said, there are people picking up our rubbish, our trash. You'd soon notice it if that service stopped. You might want to thank some of those people. A woman who runs a beauty salon got a job at a supermarket after hours just so she could keep her business afloat. She said, I've got to keep my girls employed so they can put food on the table. She said the business was shut, had been for weeks But she's taken on a job working nights so there's money for her staff to survive. She's already tapped her personal savings to make sure that her employees don't lose their jobs. How awesome is that? Jeff Langham owns a company called Drain Ninjas. And he said, I think my frontline guys are the real heroes of the lockdown. Dealing with human waste and water overflows, which almost inevitably will contain the virus if it's present. Every job they go to has a risk factor for them. And if the virus is present, it is a major hazard to their health and maybe even their lives. Langham said his team is, and I quote, the wastewater equivalent to the brave firefighters and ambulance staff, but without the sirens or the flashing lights. LA Times ran a headline that said, nurses are the coronavirus heroes. I read that when an Italian hospital ran out of ICU valves, a local business brought a 3D printer to the hospital and redesigned and produced the needed valves in a few hours. That's cool. Now, everywhere you turn, you're seeing and and you're hearing, we can do this together. And that's a necessary emphasis. It's one thing for a nurse to work in the ICU, but all of those health workers are relying on us to do the right things. 
We can appreciate an emergency room physician, but if you can keep yourself out of there or protect your loved ones so they don't have to go in there, that's even better. We know by now what to do. We wash our hands. That was always a good idea, by the way. We are maintaining a safe distance. We're doing this, not coughing out where droplets can spread and cause contamination. Many people are wearing masks and we are not stockpiling toilet paper. That was never smart. Now, we've mentioned already that there's a far deadlier disease than COVID-19 and every single person on the planet has been infected by it. It's truly deadly. Here's what we know. The Bible tells us that all have sinned, all, and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. So what is sin? This deadly disease, always fatal. There are several ways you might want to define it, but biblically, one straightforward definition is found in 1 John 3.4. It says, sin is the transgression of the law, or as some translations put it, sin is lawlessness. So as we look around, do we see much law breaking going on? Well, in the United States, there are more than 2.3 million people behind bars, roughly one in every 100 adults. If those on parole or probation are included, one adult in 31 in the United States is under correctional supervision. This country has 4% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's prison population, 33% of the world's female prison population. Now, there's plenty of controversy about that. It's probably best for us not to go there right now, but those are the numbers. There are locks on every home and people still break in. There are police in every town and criminals still commit crimes. It's not as though no one is aware of the law. There's a lot of crime, a lot of trouble in the world, a lot of law-breaking. And in spite of our best efforts, the best efforts we know of to reduce the crime rate, it's still sky high. In the United States, according to the United Nations statistics, there's a shocking 17,000 or so murders a year. That's a lot. But the United States murder rate is lower than that of Greenland. The murder rate is lower than that of Turks and Caicos. It's about half that of Russia's murder rate. In fact, there are 87 countries in the world with a higher murder rate than the United States. Sorry, Barbados, you're twice as high. Puerto Rico, three and a half times higher. Mexico, five times higher. El Salvador... The champion, 12 times higher. That's a championship you don't want to win. There are many other statistics we could look at. That's just one, but it makes a point. There's a lot of crime in the world. Was that what God envisaged in the beginning? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Look at Genesis 2.9. And out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. This was paradise. Genesis 2, starting in verse 21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. 
happy days. Except that as we saw last time we were together, it turned to custard pretty quickly. So what did God do about this? Well, I'll mention two things. The second later. First, God gave the human family guidelines for life. More than a thousand years before the birth of Jesus, God gave something to the world. Not only guidelines, but something by which God would show us what he wants to do in our lives. You find the Ten Commandments in two places in the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 5 and Exodus chapter 20. And Exodus 20 starts like this. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So notice how this goes. God says, I freed you, and therefore I have this for you. Notice, the Ten Commandments were given to people who were free. The idea was, because I've set you free, free to worship me, I got you out of that heathen land, Because you've been set free, this is what your life is going to look like. When you've been set free, this is how life will be. You know, I find this interesting or alarming. A poll in Britain just a few years ago revealed that British Christians feel that only six of the Ten Commandments are, and I quote the reporting, important principles to live by. In the land of Wycliffe and Tyndale and Wesley, Christians feel that only six of the Ten Commandments are important principles to live by. So which ones don't make the cut? Well, the majority said that not worshipping idols, taking the Lord's name in vain, keeping the Sabbath holy and not worshipping other gods aren't so important anymore. Well, let's look through the Ten Commandments And see if we can find the important ones, shall we? Commandment number one, thou shalt have no other gods before me. When God sets you free, you have no other gods before him. He is first in your life. Commandment two, thou shalt not make any graven images and bow down to worship them. Worshiping an image or an idol lowers your conception of God. God made rocks and trees. He made the stuff that false gods are made out of. It just lowers you, and God knew that. Commandment three, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. God's name is holy. When you've been set free, you're not going to use God's name callously or carelessly. And notice this. It has been suggested that someone who calls themselves a follower of Jesus and really is not, is taking God's name in vain. We might want to think about that too. Commandment number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. This is about making time for God and recognizing God as creator. This is great. It tells us God wants to spend time with you. God assumes you'd be happy to spend time with him. It's clear God wants to connect with his children. Commandment five, Honor thy father and thy mother. Family is important. Respect is important. Family bonds are to be protected. We know that the family as an institution is under attack. Commandment six, thou shalt not kill. We are to respect life. I think we all agree with that one. Commandment seven, thou shalt not commit adultery. 
Again, this is about protecting the family, respecting those you love, providing a place of security for others. The eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal. We all wish people would obey this one, don't we? Notice British Christians didn't say that this one can go. We want people to follow this principle, that's for sure. Commandment nine, thou shalt not bear false witness. God doesn't like lying. There's no trust when there is dishonesty. Society can't function that way. Tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet. This is inordinate desire or want for what is not yours. Doesn't mean you can't like a vehicle or or a certain item, but coveting promotes dissatisfaction, not only with what you have, but with how God is providing for you. It would seem there's nothing wrong with any of those laws, or would you differ? I don't think so. If these were obeyed, there'd be no murder, theft, adultery, dishonesty. People would be vastly more satisfied with life. It has been said there are so many laws in the United States, no one knows how many there are. It's true for most countries. But God managed to sum up his laws in just 10 statements. But let's be real. The challenge really isn't knowing the difference between right and wrong. There are precious few people who would think it's acceptable to steal or who don't know society has standards about taking innocent lives. It's basically programmed into you from the beginning that it's right to respect your parents or your marriage. If I stood here and told you, you shouldn't lie, you're not likely going to be enlightened by that statement. So the question isn't, what do we do? The question is, how do we do it? Even though there are only 10 commandments, keeping them can seem like an impossibility. How do you live in harmony with God? Look at what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 7. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me. But how to perform what is good, I do not find. Have you ever had that same feeling? I want to do right, but I don't seem to be able to find my way to clearly, uh, actually do what's right. Paul wrote to the same people, the church in Rome. He said, there is none who does good. No, not one. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 64 that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. So when you start to think you're doing pretty good, Isaiah helps you to see the truth of the matter. Now, notice what God says about his followers in the end of time. You read this in a part of the Bible uh, called by John, who wrote the book of Revelation, the everlasting gospel. So this is good news. He wrote these words, again, talking about people following God in earth's final days. And he said, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So how about that? Even though you find it hard not to fume at someone in traffic, even though when you put on the spot, you don't always tell the truth, let's say, or if you know you're terribly disrespectful to your parents or your spouse, we read that followers of God are to keep the commandments of God. And by the way, see what David wrote in the Psalms in Psalm 119, longest chapter in the Bible. The Bible says, great peace have they which love thy law and nothing shall offend them. Those who have peace are the ones who love God's law. There's something that happens when you and God are on the same wavelength.
something that floods your life with hope and peace. When I was growing up as a small boy, we had an old radio in the kitchen of our home my dad would listen to. One of those old radios. And if you weren't quite on the station, it sounded terrible. It'd be staticky. You know the sound. You couldn't hear the radio clearly. So what you needed to do was tune the radio to the station accurately. When you got right on the frequency, the message came through clear. What we want to do is get on the same frequency as God. But here's the challenge. The world we're living in, Jesus saw it coming. He said in Matthew 24, 12, because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Paul told us that in the last days, perilous times shall come. And if you want to know why we're seeing all this craziness and evil in the world, well, we know from last time we got together that there is a conspiracy afoot, an attempt to undermine God and his authority. Remember that conspiracy? You see it run from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. There is an enemy that wants worship. He wants you to turn away from God and serve him, not God. Look at Revelation 12, 12. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath. Why? Because he knows that he has a short time. Notice this. The devil is working with increasing fury because he knows that his time is running out. Every day that passes is a day left that he has. So he kicks it up a notch and goes with renewed force and anger. So what do we do? Look at Romans 6.16. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. It says there we are the servants of the one we choose to obey, the one that we yield to. If we yield to God, we are his servants. If we yield to sin and obey sin, we are clearly the servant of sin or of the enemy of souls. And there's a point there that I'm going to come back to. It's about that word yield. We'll get back to that. Writing in Revelation, John said that the world would follow a power the Bible calls the man of sin or the man of lawlessness. In fact, prophecy tells us there would be a power coming along that would think to change times and laws, inspiring people to consider themselves as their own moral authority. That's why we're seeing a massive amount of disregard for law, including God's law. We want a future for our children, but it's getting tougher these days with sin. A generation ago, you had to go looking for sin. Now it comes looking for you. The media, the internet, pumping out temptation constantly. You wonder, does God have a way out? Oh, of course he does. Look at this verse again, Revelation 14, 12. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So how does that happen? We're like Paul. So often we want to do what's right and we find ourselves failing. But here's the difference. 
Look at what David wrote. And before you do, remember who David was or what David was. David had a stable of wives. He was responsible for 70,000 deaths in one fell swoop. He had one man killed just so he could take his wife. Bad stuff. But look at this. It is powerful. David said in Psalm 40 and verse 8, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. And there it is. If God writes his law in your heart, he places within you a desire to follow God's will and the ability or the power to do so. It's one thing to know you have to. It's another thing to want to. And God can change your heart so that you want to honor and serve and obey him. So that sin loses its appeal. We want that. James wrote that we will be judged by the Ten Commandments. He called it the law of liberty. Freedom. And so we want that law of freedom written in our heart. That's the experience the Bible calls the new covenant experience. God says he will put his laws into our minds and write them in our hearts. Hebrews 10, 16. What if God did that? What if God wrote his law in your mind, in your heart? Then the person who doesn't want what's right will find herself being drawn towards wanting to do God's will. The sinner will find strength in God as God remakes him. If God writes his law in your heart, then you can go beyond knowing what you ought to be doing. And you can get all the way to wanting to live God's way and accepting his presence so you can keep on growing in him. There are some people who know God's will, just don't have any interest in doing it. And then there are those who know God's will and want to do it. but They find it impossible to do what they want to do. God says he'll write his law in your heart. Jesus said, Matthew chapter 5, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven or earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Why would Jesus be so emphatic about this? He didn't want us to think God's law could be changed in any way. He knew that the Ten Commandments are good for society. Jesus didn't want us to change God's law. He wanted to change our hearts. Now, a good question to ask is this. I'm hearing you. Which laws of God are still in effect? Are we meant to offer animal sacrifices today? That was in the law, wasn't it? Or what about keeping feast days? Is it mandatory today like it was back in Moses' time? Something to remember is this. In the Bible, you have two major divisions in the law. You have what we call the moral law or the Ten Commandments. And then there's what I'll call the ceremonial law. And there are some big differences between the two. You read in Deuteronomy chapter 10 that the moral law was written by God. It was written on tables of stone and it was put in the Ark of the Covenant. Whereas Deuteronomy 31 talks about a law that was written by Moses, written in a book, put in the side of the Ark of the Covenant. The Bible says this law contained ordinances and information about offerings and annual feasts and new moons. There's a passage in Colossians 2 that you might read, 
might cause you to think that maybe God's law is not important. Look at it with me. It says, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. It goes on to say, let no man judge you, therefore, in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come. Something was blotted out. Do you think it was the Ten Commandments? Just imagine if it was. If the Ten Commandments were blotted out, it would be okay to steal, okay to kill, okay to lie, okay to worship graven images, okay to forget about the Sabbath day, okay to have other gods before God. Common sense tells you the Ten Commandments were never blotted out. Oh no, it was the ceremonial law that was blotted out. And I'm glad about that. It means you don't have to offer an animal sacrifice today. You don't have to keep the Passover today. Why is that? Because Jesus is the Lamb of God. He was the one who was sacrificed for sin. He died for our sins so that we can be forgiven and made right with God. Jesus is the Passover Lamb who was slain. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Yes, God has given us a law to live by, a law to follow. And yes, we've broken it. It says that in the Bible. What have we learned already? The wages of sin is death. We deserve for sin, death. It's because sin separates us from God. What we need is for that separation to be removed and then the power to stay connected to Jesus and not be separated from him. Listen to this good news. Earlier, I asked you what God did. I said I would mention two things. First, God gave the human family guidelines for life. But human beings have stumbled there ever since sin came into the world. So here's the second thing God did. John 3:16. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, there was such love in the heart of God that Jesus was willing to die for you and bear your sins. He was falsely accused. He was beaten, tortured, died. A horrible death on the old rugged cross so that you can live forever. And it says in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Recognize you've sinned. Believe that Jesus died to save you. Confess your sins. Then believe he sets you free. You, you just got to believe. Have faith. It becomes a reality in your life. A free gift. Gifts are free. There's no other kind of gift. This is free. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible says that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Aren't you glad about that? Sin leads to death, but God comes to you with a gift, the gift of life, offers it to you freely. That's what we call grace. And what happens through this grace? The Bible says that you're born again. That means you're not the same person you used to be. You are new now. Paul says, all things are passed away. All things become new. You're under the power of another force. Whereas Paul says, we were by nature the children of wrath. 
God gives you a new nature. You're born again. And you can say with David, I delight to do your will, O my God. Yea, thy law is written in my heart. Now, let me explain something. Is it is it possible that a person might say, but we are not meant to be under the law? Listen to this. When you are a lost sinner, you're under the law. If you're trying to get to heaven without relying on Jesus, you're under the law. That is, you're under the penalty of having broken the law. But when you accept what Jesus has done for you, you're no longer under the penalty of death for having broken the law. But you've received salvation as a gift by grace. Ben, the old sinner that you were is made new. God writes his law in your heart and gives you power to live right. That's what grace does. You are made right with God. You are justified by faith in Jesus. And the Bible says that being justified by faith, we have peace. This is what many people miss. You know what too many people are doing? They're trying harder. This reminds me of the question that I had earlier, and I said, we'll come back to that. Hope you're listening. People say, I've sinned, but I'll do better next time. I've done wrong, but I'll try harder and I will do better. But it doesn't work like that. Remember, our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. You don't want to do better. You don't want to do your best. You want God to do his best. And when he does, I'll tell you what happens. Philippians 1, 6 says this. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. This is what God does in your life. Philippians 2, 13 says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. First Thessalonians 5.24, he who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. And now look again with me at this verse, Revelation 14.12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. This is what God does when he changes your life. Let me share this principle with you. I have a story to tell you in just a moment. Let me share this with you. You see, there are some people who hear a discussion about the Ten Commandments and they will say, but we don't need the Ten Commandments. No, of course you do. Unless you're happy with murder and mayhem and theft and deceit and whatever else. Of course we do. But what you really mean is we are not saved by the Ten Commandments. And so you might have just heard me say you are saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. I want to make this just about as plain as the nose on my face. No one is saved. No one curries favor with God. Nobody gets in God's good graces by obeying the Ten Commandments. Obedience comes as a result of love for God. Obedience comes as a response to God having saved you. You see, you can be saved as a miserable wretch and then God will grow you into greater and greater love and obedience as a result of what he's done. We aren't saved by the law. We don't need the Ten Commandments for salvation. Understand what you mean. You don't mean we don't want to keep them. You mean that we're not saved by them. 
And you are right. We are saved by grace through faith, but saved people will love God enough that his will is done in their life. I remember, I could never forget actually, driving home one night when I saw flashing lights behind me. I was in the state of Kentucky. Some of my best stories come from the state of Kentucky. I thought to myself, who's getting pulled over? And then realized it was a deserted road that somebody was me. I pulled over. The officer asked me why I was speeding. I didn't even realize why I'd been, that I'd been speeding. But that's not good enough. The sign said 35. He said, did you see the sign? What sign? I knew I was in trouble. He took my license and went back to his car. I prayed, Lord, I broke the law. I really did. I'm sorry. If you can get me out of this, I would appreciate it. (laughs) But if you choose not to, I've only got myself to blame. At that time, I was under the law, under the penalty for having broken the law. The law could get me. It could affect me. But the officer came back and handed me a courtesy notice. He said, I don't want to catch you driving too fast around here again. And I said, no, you won't catch me. He let me go. His name, Trooper Payne. I have his autograph on that courtesy notice, which I have kept. God bless you, Trooper Payne. It's been 25 years, so I don't think you'll get outed for being too lenient. He could have thrown the book at me. So what was that that I experienced? I experienced grace. I was now under grace. God chooses not to throw the book at you because you've chosen Jesus. You are under grace. Does it mean you don't have to obey him? Wrong question. You want to do his will. Grace isn't licensed to live without reference to God. It's God's blessing towards you for salvation. And you respond to that by giving him your heart. God's got a great plan for you and me, a plan of grace. If only people would come to him and accept that plan and be changed by grace, there'd be peace where now there's not peace. We talk about nations and wars, but what about your heart tonight, friend? Is there peace there? God wants to give you that peace through the work of his grace. If you'd embrace Jesus as your savior, open your heart up to the working of God. Something will happen in your life. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's less of a command, more of an inevitability. And what happens in your life as a result? Jesus comes and brings his presence and his goodness and his peace. Love for God brings the peace of God into your life. There was a time Jesus was in a boat with his closest friends. A storm came up so bad they thought they were going to perish. In a panic, they woke Jesus who looked at the wind and the waves and he said, Peace, be still. Would you like to have Jesus speak that same peace into your life tonight? You see, Jesus is our hero in a time of crisis. He stooped to the lowest form and took the toughest job. He had no form nor comeliness. He was despised and rejected of men. He took our sin and gave us his righteousness. In this upside down world, Jesus wants to speak peace into your life. And he will if you'll let him. He'll do in your life what you can't do, living his life in you. God wants you to identify with his heroes, those who on this earth and earth's last days are trusting him, leaning on him, allowing the world to see what God can do, not in people who are strong, but in people who are leaning on the strong one for strength. You want to be that person? Jesus is coming back soon. We don't know when. The signs say soon. Can you lean on him for your strength tonight? Let me pray with you. Let's pray now. Father in heaven, 
Give us grace to lean on you. Fill us with your presence. Let your grace flood our lives so we can live the sort of life you have promised we might live. Thank you for Jesus tonight. And keep us, we ask you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Another great presentation. Isn't it amazing to see how that the only part of the Bible that was actually written by the finger of God is the part that somehow people think doesn't matter anymore. Now, we want to give you access to tonight's study guide. So you'll be able to get more insights into this topic. Now, to get access to this guide, you need to go to our website, hopeawakens.com.au. As in our previous programs, if you have any questions about tonight's topic, go to our website, hopeawakens.com.au, and post them there. We'll do our best to answer them each night before John's presentation. So where are we going tomorrow night? You're not going to want to miss tomorrow night's topic, From Failure to Victory. We'd love to have you continue this journey with us, so tune in tomorrow night at 7.30. Hope you all have a pleasant evening. Good night.